Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. I have to just say the past is the past and I don't do things that way anymore. You know, I'm able to catch myself now and say, well, well, wait, why do you really not want to do this and really think it through? And sometimes the answer is, well, I just don't want to do it. And sometimes the answer is I am a little scared of this, you know, and you know, we have, we have an infinite capacity to trick ourselves and to, to tell ourselves lies and justify those lies. And so I was able to believe that, oh, this idea is beneath me or this project is an equality project or whatever. And, you know, stuff like that is, it's embarrassing when I think about it because you, you, I want to tell people like, hey, I was scared all the time. And uh, <laughs> I know I, my way of expressing it was that I was uh, better than everyone else or I was, you know, superior, too good for it or whatever, but really I was just terrified. That was Paul F. Tompkins. I'm Sam Fragoso. This is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Paul F. Tompkins is one of those rare people in show business who continues to work on good projects at a shockingly fast pace. In 2017 alone, Tompkins did voice work on BoJack Horseman, Bob's Burgers, and Tangled the series. He acted in Adam Ruins Everything, Bajillion Dollar Properties, Speechless. There are more projects just from this year that I'm leaving out. This run-through doesn't even account for his constant work on podcasts. He's the creator and host of Spontanea Nation on the Earwolf Network, but he's also a staple on Comedy Bang Bang and 
with special guest Lauren Lapkus. It's hard to imagine that anyone podcasts more than Tompkins. But before he was prolific, he was just Paul, an ambitious, hardworking comedian-slash-actor who wanted to make it in Hollywood as a funny person. Over the next hour, we run through Tompkins' past until working up to the present. He's the kind of guest you always hope for on a show. Someone who comes out of the gate with a bit of honesty. So, here is Paul F. Tompkins. So, let's start with this. Okay. How are uh, you managing your life right now in terms of <laughs> the amount of shit? And by shit, I mean good quality, upstanding programs that right. you find yourself in. Right. From podcasts to TV to movies. It is astonishing. And I, I don't mean that in sort of like a jerking you off kind of way, but it's impressive. I didn't take it as that. You know, not, I don't want to be too masturbatory, but it does seem... Uh, you're doing a lot. Well, yeah. I, I, and I feel like I am managing it a little better now than I usually do. And and I believe it or not, I'm, I'm saying no to more things so that I don't run myself down because I, you know, I just don't have as much energy as I used to. And I think I, I tend to burn myself out. I'll, I'll take on a lot of projects and I'll, I'll do a lot of travel. And then at the end of the year, I really pay for it. You know, I really feel it. I feel every minute that I've been running around. And so I've tried to carve out some more time, you know, to, to spend time with my wife, to see friends, you know, it was like stuff that I, I realized that I wasn't making a, a concerted effort to do. And I realized, well, I have to do those things. You know, I, I, I can't as much as, the difficult thing is I love working and I love doing a lot of different types of things and working with a lot of different types of people. And and there were many fun opportunities that have come my way and it's hard to say no. And, and so every year I would tell myself, okay, this is the year I'm going to make difficult choices, which means sometimes you say no to a thing that you really want to do. And there were a couple opportunities to do you know, fun live shows or, uh, you know, a couple of TV spots where I had to say, I can't do it because I'm in, I'm in bad shape. Like I'm in, like my, it, my health will suffer if I, if I take this on in addition to the other things that I already have going. And, you know, that said, I could probably pare it back even further, but you know, it is, uh, it is difficult. There's a lot of fun stuff out there to do. Taking care of yourself. Was that something you were doing at the start of your career? No, that's I, I that was like a thing I never thought about. I didn't know what that meant. You know, it was not, you know, I was I was a young guy. I was I started doing open mics when I was, you know, 17 years old, going on 18. And, you know, the idea of self-care was not only not a concept that I subscribed to, but it was also not a thing I really heard of. And I was going at it pretty hard and smoking and drinking and, and, you know, getting as much stage time as I possibly could and carousing with my friends. And, you know, as I, as I grew up, as I matured, 
you know, I took the work more and more seriously and, and the carousing less so. And, and that gave me a different experience because, you know, the work felt so good now. It felt so good to be like older and more confident and more sure of my abilities, but also putting myself in situations where I was doing something I'd never done before, learning a new thing. That felt so good that it became uh, it became very hard to to not do everything. Right. You know. I think my introduction to you is 1997. You do a special called "Driven to Drinking." Mm-hmm which I've heard you talk about in the past as not being especially proud of it now in the way that none of us are generally that proud of the, the one of the first things we do. It, it It's good that we did it. That's yeah. the best part of it. Absolutely. There's, there's a lot of it. I think that's still good. I, I haven't watched the whole thing in a long time. It's only a half hour, but uh, I watched it last night. Did you really? Wow. And I know they still rerun it on HBO like once a year. Oh, There'll they? be like a, a handful of days where I will, people will tweet me screen caps from it. Um, but I, you know, it's like one of those things, you know, it's very hard to look at your own work, especially when you were at a, at a period where you were still figuring things out, you know? And so obviously there's, I would write it differently and I'd approach things differently, but you know, I can definitely, I could definitely appreciate it for what it is and the, and the time in which it was made. And I know that I put a, I put my best effort into it. At, at the time, you yeah. know, I was definitely taking it seriously and, and giving it everything I had. Um, I just, you know, didn't know as much. I just I didn't have as much experience as I do now. You know, I, I feel like, but it was the beginning of a path that I, that I think I'm still on. In 96, 97, you moved here from Philadelphia. Is that I moved, yeah, I moved to Los Angeles in 1994. Okay. I was 25 years old and, uh, you know, worked a, a few day jobs and then got hired on uh, Mr. Show with Bob and David on okay. HBO. So things worked out fairly early on. I mean, it wasn't that difficult, was it? I was very lucky in that I, uh, I'm very fortunate in that that was a, a relatively rapid path that I was on, you know, and, and it's it's all because of, uh, it was timing. It was just good timing. Like I got here at a time when. Is that what you chalk it up to? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, I don't, this is not to say that I am not talented or that I didn't have, you know, abilities, but you know, so much of, of this stuff really does come down to timing. You know, I, I got to Los Angeles at a time when a lot of other people were moving here from, New York, from Chicago, from San Francisco. And it was a really, uh, it was a really heady time. There were a lot of really funny people from various disciplines, stand up, improv, sketch. And we all kind of got here around the same time. And we all uh, found each other pretty quickly and started putting on shows. You know, you put on shows for free. And it was, but it was, it was a, for me, an introduction coming from the world of stand up, getting into sketch, which I hadn't really done before. And finding uh, a partner in uh, uh, Jay Johnston, and he and I started writing stuff together really quickly after meeting. We hit it off right away, and that led to Mr. Show. So it was, you know, it was a it, it was a time of great energy. You know, there was this community of people that were really creative, really energized, and motivated, and really supportive of each other. 
and everyone worked with each other. Everyone did stuff together, and it was a blast. You know, sounds so kind. What's that? That sounds so kind. It it really was. It really was. It was. It was. You know, it's what one of those scenes where, you know, it's it's this wide social group. You know, when people had parties, it would be the entire like everybody was always together, you know, and you saw the same people over and over again. We got to know each other really quickly. And when did that dynamic change so radically? Well, I think just it changed when people started doing their own things, you know, like we were all kind of in our, you know, mid 20s and you know, as people began to just grow up and, and start their own lives, people started getting married, people started having families and, and people started, and people started being successful, you know, people started being busy. So the, the group as it was, couldn't hold together for that long because, you know, people just having their own lives. Uh, Was success something you wanted? Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I mean, I, I, I don't I don't know who wouldn't want that. Sure, but know? I think it's on a sliding scale for everyone. Well, I guess what what your definition of success is is on a sliding scale. And certainly when I was younger, the idea of being, you know, a household name was what I considered to be the goal, you know. As far as I knew, that's how you would know if you'd made it. Who was know? the goal at like 13, 14? Yeah, 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 exactly. It's because you're looking at people on TV, you know, you're looking, watching people in the movies and you're saying, well, I want that life, you know, and then being inside of it, you know, you, the perception, the perspective shifts so that I think of a, of having my own television show. I think of that as like, okay, that would be a good job, you know, as opposed to this will make everyone love me, you know, it's, I don't need that validation from strangers in that way anymore, you know, because I've become my own person and, you know, I I have a full life with my wife and, you know, I, I have good friends. I have family. It's more like, you know, I want to do good fun work that Uh will sustain me financially, you know? And so it's less about, I want to get stopped every two feet as I walk down the street. In Driven to Drinking, were you looking for the validation of other people? In that period, yeah. I think it was still important to me then that I become famous, you know, that I become, you know, America's sweetheart or whatever idea I had at the time. You know, I wanted You as America's sweetheart is really a wonderful idea. That it's probably the hardest title to attain because you you really do have to be a sweetheart. And I don't think I was a sweetheart. (laughs) I think I was funny, but I don't think I was a sweetheart. You seem like an ass. I'm sorry? You seem like an ass. Like now or then? Then. Now, no. In that special, you seemed uh, a little bit like a curmudgeon. Yeah, I think because that's what I thought that... um, What if I said to you, no, you're a complete asshole now? Well, I would just leave, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think back then, I, 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 I did think that... That had to be a part of comedy, you know? That had to be part of the bit. Well, yeah. I mean, well, I I think I saw comedy as a thing that was negative, you know, that was being funny in a negative way or negative in a funny way, you know? And so there are targets in that special that are not me, 
And like, sometimes I'm poking fun of myself, but a lot of times I'm poking fun at other people. And they're very, to me now, they're very soft targets. They're things that are not kind of not worth bringing up, you know? Uh And, but that's also a, a, I think a, a function of maturity is, is realizing what's important and letting go things that are just uh, annoying. Like Uh that's not worth talking about. (laughs) I mean, honestly, to me, that's what things like social media are for. That's what Twitter is for is these mild kind of jokes about, you know, being in a line somewhere or being at the airport or whatever, right. like things that I wouldn't necessarily talk about on stage. Cause it's like, who cares? You know, at the time you I, I liked rewatching it last night. I was struck by two things. One, there's a quality of storytelling that I found myself moved by uh, in a way that you don't usually feel that in, in a standup routine. But even then you had this quality of easily guiding someone through a story where I, I shouldn't have really given a shit about your beer philosophy. <laughs> there was no reason, there's no need for that. Right. But at the end of it, I did, I liked the stage play dynamic that mm-hmm. you created. And it struck me even then, I don't know how, so you were, uh, you're 48 now, 49? Well, I'll, uh, I'll be 49 next year, yeah. Okay, so you were, that's 20 years ago, mm-hmm. 27, 28. Even then, it seemed you had a grasp on how to tell a story. I think I'd always been kind of theatrical, you know, and that, that special in particular, you know, the way it was set up was that, uh, a few of us, a handful of us got these deals with HBO independent productions and they had just had a hit with everybody loves Raymond. Oh. And so they saw this as a way to, you know, make more everybody loves Raymond type successes. (laughs) Because Ray Romano did this half-hour special, stand-up special, that essentially served as the pilot for his sitcom. You know, it was like he laid out his whole deal, the family relationships, you know, his reaction to things. It was like, this is all, this is so easily translatable into a show. And, you know, so they chose four stand-ups and they, they thought, well, we'll do the, we'll follow this model, you know, this will work out. And for me, I wanted it to be, more i wanted it to be like a real one man show like a real play instead of just a half hour of stand up that i pretended was a play right. you know and so everything in that with the exception of the bit about the alternative pets was written specifically for that special so i didn't use any of my other existing stand up and so for especially for that reason i'm still proud of it um i would just you know, I would rewrite it today. Yeah. Um, but what's funny is that I wasn't ready to embrace that in my standup yet. I consider that a separate thing. And so it would be many years still before I was able to feel like I had the confidence and the, the, uh, even like feel like I had the right to be a little bit more thoughtful in my standup and take the time with a story. Yeah. And and paint a picture, you know. So would you say stand-up was the first clear goal that you had? Yeah, for sure. I, I always loved it. I always loved it. I loved watching it. I loved listening to albums. You know, my parents had comedy albums uh, from the 60s, you know, that I would listen to when I was a kid. Bob Newhart and Bill Cosby and stuff like that. And I, to me, that always seemed like the funnest and coolest thing 
was stand-ups, you know. Yeah. And um it's just interesting because your trajectory changed so quickly. It seemed once you moved to LA and just engulfed yourself in this situation, yeah. you started doing, you know, UCB stuff and you were clearly interested in acting in movies and TV. I don't think that trajectory is that common from comedian to seemingly everything else. I don't know. I think it's more common than you think. I, I think that is, um, I mean, there's some people that for whom stand up is just a means to an end. It's, you know, I'll do this and it'll lead to movies or TV and then they don't do stand up anymore. And for me, stand up was always going to be part of it. I wanted to do everything, but, you know, stand up was so much fun. And I also was able to exert the most control over that, you know, as I got, you know, as I, as I went along in the business, you know, it started to be more and more appealing to me to work with other people because, you know, even though you don't have as much control, you also don't have as much pressure and you're also not alone. You know, when, when stand up is going badly, you're up there by yourself and it sucks, you know, but if you're doing sketch, if you're doing improv and it's not going well, you have another person with you that is sharing that experience and it makes it so much better. 50% you know? better. Yeah. It makes it 50% better. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I enjoyed kind of just jumping into all these different things. And I, I think there's a fair amount of, of performers that, that do the same. Yeah. In the early 2000s, how were you feeling about your health at that time? <laughs> that might've been when I first started really thinking about that. You know, I, I, Got the job at Mr. Show, and that was my first time working in an office and also my first big show business job. So it was a terrible combination in terms of health because, you know, it had the the sitting around aspect of an office and then all the anxiety of an important job that I was sure I was going to be fired from at any moment. <laughs> and so- You thought that? All the time. All the time. Why? I thought, well, because I never felt like you know, I never had a job like that before. And so I'd write a sketch and then, you know, take it to Bob and David and the way that they would rewrite it or reshape it into their voice. I felt like, oh man, I'll never get there. I, this is my job. I'm supposed to be able to write for these guys. And I didn't realize that, that that was part of the job was that it's not necessarily that it has to be 100% ready to go it's okay that the the basic idea is there and then they someone else can reshape it that other we all work on it together you know we you know I, I was my first experience in a writer's room and so it took me a long time probably not until the the second season that i worked on it where i felt more comfortable uh. you know i felt like i wasn't gonna get, gonna get tossed out yeah and and so that combination of having this job you never had, yeah, and things getting better in your life, did it help? Oh well, feel? that caused me so so having this this high pressure job, what to me was a high pressure high stakes job, and being in an office meant that I gained a bunch of weight because I was I was really anxious and I was really and I was also having I didn't realize that I was having a hard time in this situation because I was figuring out that I didn't want to write for a living. I didn't want to write for other people. You know, I liked performing too much 
And that was such a hard idea for me to grasp in that situation because, well, this is, this is the best writing situation that's ever going to be for me, you know, is like being in this room with these people that I'm already a huge fan of before the show even aired. And if it's still not enough for me now, then what am I doing? You know, and, and also feeling the guilt of that too, you know, because knowing that there, there were people that would kill to be where I was and here was me feeling like, Oh, this, I'm not having fun. You know, like it's not that I never had fun, but it wasn't as much fun as performing, you know? And so I really lived for when we would do the live shows and I got to be a bit player in something, or I got to do the warm up for the live audience. I really enjoyed that so much. And that's when it kind of, you know, fell into place for me. I realized, yeah, I can't, there's nothing for me on this path that I can see, you know, if I leave here, am I going to go to another writing job? You know, and I realize I'm not going to do that. And I, the answer would probably have been yes, if you stayed on that path. If if I stayed on that path, if I, but I, I, I think I was just always too much of a performer to 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 want to do that, mm-hmm. to to be okay doing that, and so I stepped off that path. Mm-hmm. And that's what that, and you know, it was that opportunity to do uh, Driven to Drink that ended up being what. Uh, took me away from the writer's room of Mr. Show. Yeah. You know, in this special, you have this great story about uh, a girl mm-hmm. that you really like. Mm-hmm. You, you describe a, a situation I think all of us have been in at one time or another where you two are friends, you guys continue a nice friendship. At some point in the friendship, you turn to her and say, well, wouldn't it be great if it was uh, something more than friendship? Mm-hmm. She responds, uh, not positively, I think. I imagine that was something that was happening around that time. Well, this was in Crying and Driving, I think. I don't know in in Driven to Drink if I... Was it the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember this. I don't remember that specific moment. Yeah, well, because you you were like... uh, God, I I don't want to butcher the joke, but it was something to the extent of... We have a problem in our relationship. It's that I just like scream at her sometimes about. Oh, 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 oh. I deal with issues in a really functional way. I won't say anything for about six months. Yes, yes, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. That was describing your dynamic with her. Yeah, for sure. And that was that was me. And and you know, there's. Uh, I imagine it was. I guess my question is: Was it hard to develop worthwhile relationships then? Oh yeah. Well, I I my my idea of relationships was uh, not based on anything healthy, you know, it was based on movies. You know, I, I, I didn't have a good model relationship growing up. My parents did not have a great marriage and I just didn't know. I'd never had a successful relationship. I didn't know what one was. Yeah. And did they stay together? (laughs) Yeah, they sure did. Yeah. They stayed together forever. Yeah. And my parents did the opposite. They just, they called it quits early. That's the way to do it. And then just found other people. Yeah. That's what you should do. If you're not happy, you know, I had a a very good friend of mine was going through a divorce around the time that my mother died and he came to the wake, you know, after the funeral and, and that's around 2008, 2009. 
uh, around 2007, I believe. Yeah. 2007, she died. And so I was, uh, I was walking into his car. Um, we hadn't seen each other in a long time. And, and, uh, he told me, yeah, I think my marriage is over, you know? And, and, you know, I guess I just got to face the fact that I have a failed marriage, you know, and he was feeling understandably, I, I think it's a, a very common reaction feeling like I've, I've, I've failed at something, you know, I have, uh, you know, this, it's like a, a, a taking on a blame that, you know, and a shame that is just that people shouldn't take on, you know? Right. And I said to him, you know, because he has two kids and I said, it's better for your kids. If you guys, if you think this is over, if you guys split up, that's better for them. So you can go off and be happy with other people. It's better for your kids to see you happy than it is for them to see you miserable. You know, because I, I grew up with, you know, a mother and father that were estranged from each other in the same house. And it was horrible, you know, and it wasn't until my father died. Uh, Did you feel it was horrible as a kid? Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't know how much I would have been able to intellectualize it or, or vocalize it. I, I, I knew that it was bad and I did wonder why don't they get divorced, you know, but it wasn't until my father died that I felt like a huge sense of relief that the specter of their marriage was finally gone. As like, so my mom died in 2007. My dad died in 2010. And as long as my dad was alive, like the idea of their horrible marriage was still alive. And once he died, it was like a weight had been lifted. You know, I wasn't happy that my parents were dead, but it, it, and it, you know, it took me, it took some figuring out, like, why do I, we were all, my brothers and sisters and I were all kind of, you know, euphoric. My wife comments on it that she'd never seen people laugh so much, you know, at a wake. And, and, you know, we were all, we talked about it. We all felt the same sense of relief. That he was gone. No, not that he was gone. That but the idea the, of this. the the weight of their horrible relationship that hovered over all of our lives, all of our lives, you know, didn't make anything any easier. Yeah, you know, you think it kept hovering? Oh yeah, for sure. Because when it was gone, we felt it. We <laughs> knew, you know, that it was just this thing that was always there. What was so toxic about it? You know, I don't know because it, it, it went back as far as I could remember. Like I never, sh I'd never seen them show any affection to each other, you know? And, you know, I think it's that they were doing, they were greatest generation people. They, they were, you know, children during the depression, they were doing what was expected of them by their, by their culture, by their time, by their religion. You know, they're both Catholic and I think that it proved to be maybe not what either of them wanted or expected. And, you know, having six kids is like, that's insane. You know, a it's, lot. it's, it's so much, it's so much. <laughs> and I think that, you know, they had different views on 
what their responsibilities were in the, in the marriage and as parents. And, you know, I think my mother felt like just overwhelmed and burnt out all the time. And, and my dad was very quiet and removed and, you know, so it was, uh, it was not great. So where have you seen it influence your robot stuff? Oh, well, it was like, you know, for me, relationships were, it was proof of lovability. And so, uh, uh, the, the pattern that I am embarked on was I would find, I would just pick the woman where it was never going to work out because if I could make that person love me, then that was proof that I was lovable. But it was also just mirroring, you know, my upbringing where nothing was ever quite good enough. And my mother was always disappointed or, or too tired or whatever, you know, and you know, this is a woman who I talk about in one of my stand-up specials that uh, she, at the end of her life, asked me, you know, have you figured out what you're going to do with the rest of your life? And it's like, this is what I'm doing. Like, the verdict is in. I'm making a living doing this. Like, you know. There's not a sudden career change coming. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and you know, it's at, at the end of it, I don't know if that was a, uh, if she, if that's how she always really felt, or if that's just was like a, a, a moment in her, you know, as a result of dying, you know, she's in the process of dying. And is she completely all there when she's asking me this question? I do know that it definitely bothered you. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, she never said, you know, my parents never said, I'm proud of you, you know, and they never expressed much interest in what I did for a living. And, you know, and it's a drag, you know, of course, those are the people that you want to, you know, be your cheerleader. And, you know, when I'd see it in other people's parents, it was, it, it was amazing. And, and you realize, well, that's how it should be. You know, it's like, you should feel embarrassed by them. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. It, it should be like, oh my God, I can't believe they're commenting on the Facebook post of this thing I did. Oh, Jesus. Oh, you mean when the parents are supportive? Yeah. <laughs> you should be yes. you should be like, oh, fuck, exactly. I gotta like hide their comment on Facebook. It should be a wry smile and an eye roll, you know, but you know, it like my wife is an actress and, and her parents were always, always, always supportive and it's wonderful. You know, it's, it's a great thing to see that they're excited about every job that she gets and they ask her questions all the time. And, you know, my, uh, you know, the only, the only, my family is my brothers and sisters are somewhat more interested. I have one sister. All she cares about is what, what famous people I've met, <laughs> but the, the rest of them usually will ask me, you know, what I'm working on and, you know, that kind of thing. And one of your brothers was late to your mother's funeral. <laughs> yes, that's true. My older brother was late to my mother's funeral. Yeah. Can you just briefly do that bit for this oh show? Oh my God. It's been such a long time, but he, he showed up, I want to say 15 minutes late and he had still like sheet marks on his face. <laughs> well, he, he, I, I, but by the way, I talked to him earlier. He sounded really busy. He sounded no, so sure. busy. Look, there's always stuff going on. Right. And it's not like she was getting any debtor. Oh, that was the most dead she was ever going to yes, get. It's true. Top dead. Yeah. So what changed it to you to, to, to make you want someone who was actually going to love you? Well, I had a um I had a, a really bad situation, worse than the one in Driven to Drink, 
where I had a female friend that I absolutely fell in love with. And it, was this something that happened often too? No, it wasn't always friends that, that happened sometimes. Usually my, the pattern would be, I would just be hung up on some girl and I would be hung up on that girl until the next girl came along. Right. You know, and it's pretty standard. Yeah. And so this, this friend, I really, you know, I really fell for her and, and told her and it caused a great strain in our relationship. And then she just had enough and, and that was the end of our friendship. And that was when I realized, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I need, I need help. And I started going to therapy and that absolutely changed my life. I had a couple more relationships after that. One was the similar pattern of the unavailable woman, but resolved itself so much faster. Like I recognized what was going on and got past it so much faster. I was like, oh, okay, this is progress. You caught it. Yes, I did. Then I had a relationship that was, you know, it was okay. It just wasn't the relationship. And we dated for a few months and then it ended and it was not, there was no drama and it was fine. And then I spent some time just being by myself where I wasn't pining for someone. So what age is this? This was my mid thirties, mid thirties. Okay. And so the mid two thousand. Sure. Yes. And, um, that made all the difference, you know, like for the first time in my life, I wasn't hung up on somebody and I was okay being by myself. And I was, you know, living my life and, to not have that burden of thinking about this one person all the time and, you know, wanting to be with them and being angry that they don't want to be with me. And, you know, that was the turning point for me. Uh. You know? And then not long after that, I met the, I, I started dating the woman that was going to become my wife. Uh. It's strange how that works out. Yeah. Very strange. I mean, people always say like the moment you stop, you stop looking, it comes. Yeah. Well, because the thing is, what what nobody ever says is that is what that means. And what that means is you got to be okay with you, you know? And I had been looking at, I think most of us at some point or another, we're looking at relationships as a means of completion for the person we think we're supposed to be. And it's like, I know I will be valid if someone else will validate me, then I'll be, this will be the proof that I'm fine, you know? And to realize that, oh, it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm a damaged, terrible person if I'm alone. If I'm by myself, you know, for a while, that's fine, you know. And it, it just, to, to be looking at life in a different way like that, it was so new to me and it was really, it was great, you know. It was great and I felt better than I'd ever felt. And, and just like making my own decisions enjoying being with people and, and, you know, just kind of getting to know who I was and how I felt about things. And, you know, without that, that, you know, oppressive, you know, desperation hanging over it all the time was, that was a huge turning point. How were you feeling about things in the, in the mid 2000s? I know the thing that stands out to me is that you're in, there will be blood, which is always <laughs> so strange to think about. Yeah. That you're in that film. Absolutely. For me too. Uh, it is. Yeah. How, well, how? 
How, What's that? The, <laughs> how, how did that happen? Oh, um, I sort of knew Paul Thomas Anderson through uh, the nightclub Largo, and he had cast me in a bit part in Magnolia, and the visual of me ended up getting cut, but you can still hear my voice in the movie. And he said, you know, he was very apologetic, said I had to cut you out of the movie, but I'll make it up to you. And then years later, he he just asked me to do this one line thing and there will be blood and, and, you know, and it was a really crazy fun thing that I got to do. Um, what do you remember about that set? Uh, it was very far away. They had built this, this weird little town in Valencia, California. And, you know, they had made this, you know, muddy turn of the century street and to just be there, you know, and, and being in the same room with Daniel Day Lewis, it was just such a a great surreal moment that was it was funny to me the whole time I was there. You know? <laughs> and it was but I mean, obviously it was exciting too. Like it was it was I took it seriously and I got to have the briefest of acting moments opposite, you know, one of the greatest living actors. And, you know, it was really cool. And I and I was able to uh I was able to enjoy it you know, in a way that previously things like that would have been hard for me to enjoy because I would have been so scared. And, you know, there was still like some fear, some anxiety, but I was able to embrace it in a way that I wasn't before. And I was able to say, well, this is normal that you're feeling this way. This is like, you know, this is a big deal. This guy is really intense, you know, like it's okay that you feel this way. Yeah. Did fear hold you back early on in your career? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Of what kind? Well, I think I made a lot of decisions to not do things based on fear. And I think I turned down work or opportunities for work because I was uh, afraid that I couldn't do it, afraid that I would be discovered as a fraud, afraid of, you know, whatever. And, you know, that's very hard for me to let go of. And, uh, you know, I have to just say the past is the past and I don't, do things that way anymore. You know, I'm able to catch myself now and say, well, well, wait, why do you really not want to do this? Um, and really think it through. And sometimes the answer is, well, I just don't want to do it. And sometimes the answer is I am a little scared of this, you know? And back then I, I was able to, you know, we have, we have an infinite capacity to trick ourselves and to, to tell ourselves lies and justify those lies. And so I was able to believe that, oh, this idea is beneath me or this project is an equality project or whatever. And I think it, I think it probably hurt me. I think it, it probably gave me a bad reputation with some casting directors, you know, and, you know, stuff like that is, it's embarrassing when I think about it, you know, because you, you, I want to tell people like, Hey, I was scared all the time. And, uh, (laughs) I know I, my way of expressing it was, that I was uh, better than everyone else or I was, you know, superior, too good for it or whatever, but really I was just terrified. Was that your mode of operating? A lot of the time. I wouldn't say all the time, but a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the thing that I think a lot of people know about you, sort of a surface detail, is that since you were a kid, a teenager, you've always been especially fashionable. (laughs) And I think that contributed to this image of 
confident this image. I'm sure it did. Absolutely. Was that an intentional choice back then and even now? No. I, I it was just the way that I felt comfortable. I mean, I guess it was there is a, a confidence aspect to it in that it made me feel better. It did. Know? But it was not a conscious decision to project confidence. You oh. know? It was just that I liked the way I looked better in in dress up clothes. Yeah. You know? I mean that's the natural byproduct of dressing nicely is that you do feel good. I should, I should hope so. I should hope so. But people are skeptical. People are skeptical. Yes. You have a bit about that, that first special. <laughs> yes, I do. But even now, you know, I will say I moved here a year ago mm-hmm. and I was living in San Francisco before that. And I dressed better then. <laughs> right. I did. I just hear it's like people are like, what? You're in a button-up shirt like what's happening are, are you <laughs> okay true. did you just come from a funeral yeah, are you yeah, all yeah. right and i don't know what i think there's an actual larger psychological play that i don't understand i mean the thing is i i understand it to a certain degree because it's nothing but good that we live in a time where people can dress however they want and that things don't have to be so formal and that you know you can go out and about in a t-shirt and shorts like that's great if people are comfortable that's better you know i for me you know the only time that i kind of shake my head is if it's like a wedding or something like that and it's like you can dress up for a wedding because for me part of it is the ceremony you know and i i i like you know i I grew up catholic and so i like rituals i like ceremonies i like we only wear this garment at this time you know um but a thing that I think a lot of people think about me is that I believe everyone should dress better, and I honestly don't care. I feel like people should just be comfortable. I people I feel like if you think, you know, you feel good and you look good wearing whatever you're wearing, wear that. Absolutely, one hundred percent. That's the thing people think about you. Oh, people all the time. It's a weird assumption that people make. You know, and people have said it to me like, oh, you think everyone should wear a tie all the time. It's like, why would I, why would I think that? <laughs> why would I, what it's, I mean, it's really insulting. The idea that I'm going around thinking everyone should look like me, it's which, pretty, which I do not think. That, that'd be a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wish you did come into my house and were like, yeah. <laughs> could you please, since you're home, could you please go put on a tie? Happy to. Would have, would have been happy to. But what a fucked up thing to think about somebody like, oh, you think everyone you think everyone should look like you. What, what why would I think that? I don't know. There's something that you must have done that made people think that. Of course it's my fault. Absolutely. 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 Always your fault. Yes. That's what we've really got to the bottom of this. That's right. Do you think the elitism thing has continued? No, I don't. I mean, I I I think I'm less of a comedy snob than I used to be. I think I. You were. Yeah, I was. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure I was. And I realized that, you know, I, well, it's also, you know, I've seen comedy evolve over the years and there's so many different disciplines of comedy and it's great. You know, like I used to be very down on anything that was crass or, um, you know, used foul language or whatever. And now I'm way more relaxed on that, you know, as long as it's funny, yeah. you know, and but part of that's probably the Catholic upbringing. I mean, I also, oh, for sure. With the Catholic school for Absolutely. 10 years. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And you know, that that stuff takes a long time to shake. And, you know, I still in my in my stand-up, I try not to curse too much just because not because I'm afraid of offending people, but because I do know that it's it can be a crutch. Huh. And, you know, I'll curse a lot more when I'm working material out. And then I have to when I when I'm getting this stuff into shape, then I have to go back and take out all the curse words. Right. You know, to make sure because that to me, I know that it's sound, you know, that it's not like Hey, I'm doing squeaky clean, you know, Christian comedy, but it's those words. I feel they are, they feel like unearned laughs to me, Uh you know, which is not to say that I don't laugh at curse words because I, I do a lot, you know, and when I started doing an improv podcast, you know, this is the second, um, I, I, there were two podcasts that I hosted that were, you know, like my totally my thing. One was the pod F top cast. And that was my first thing. And I was, I was very conscious of the fact that I had, in addition to adult fans, I had kid fans because I'm silly, you know, and I like to do voices and things like that. So I knew that there were a lot of kids that listened to this and I was a kid who loved comedy. And so the idea, when people would tell me, you know, me and my son listened to you together, that made me feel so good. Yeah. It made me feel so good. And so you could hit both boxes. Yeah. 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 And that they could enjoy it together was a really wonderful thing. And so I made a conscious effort to keep that clean. Uh-huh. You know? And it's not to say that I, you know, my humor, especially when I'm improvising, it gets dark, you know, but it never gets, I never really got sexual. I never really cursed. I didn't really get gross, you know? And then, so that was in 2010. Uh huh. And then when I started this show, Spontaneous Nation, that I'm currently doing in 2015, I took off all restrictions. And it was what happens, happens. I'm working with other people. They'll say what they'll say. And it, it all, the idea was, this is how I learned to let go. Uh-huh. Because I, I lean towards being a control freak. And... The problem is there's so many things that are outside of your control, so many things that you can be very disappointed very often. And so this was an absolute conscious effort on my part to, to make a thing that I was not in control of. I, I couldn't, I couldn't micromanage everything that everything, everyone else was doing. It was going to go out unedited. You know, what happens happens. We put it out. And I wasn't going to think twice about it, you know, and it was actually really useful and really helpful because it, it made me, I got into that, that mode of being able to let things go and to not obsess on them after the fact, Uh you know, and, you know, I just hadn't been that way before, whether it was a thing I was creating or whether it was a thing that I said to somebody, you know, that I wished I could have taken back those kind of things. You were hung up on that. Oh yeah. 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 I'd revisit, I'd revisit old, not just old slights. Um, you know, people that had said something to me that I didn't like, but times when I had been rude or uncaring or mean, you know, would come back to me and, and just, well, how often was that though? Oh, more often than I would have liked, you know, 
more often than I am am comfortable with. You you know? you were uncharitable. Yeah, I was. I I wasn't as I wasn't as empathetic as I could have and should have been, and that was a lesson that that was that was a skill that took me a long time to develop. Uh. But once I saw the value in it, it made my life easier. It 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 made my life easier to empathize with other people. And you know, I I. I was who I was and I did the best I could with the tools that I had at the time. Yeah. But you know, I wish my only regret really is that I wish I could have gotten to this place sooner uh. you know? because I think I'm a better, I think I'm a better person. I'm not a perfect person, but I'm a better person than I was. I think I'm a better friend than I used to be. I could stand to be a better family member. I could always stand to be a better partner to my wife, even though I think I'm pretty good we have a good relationship uh to me that's that's like the most important relationship and that i am happy to work on all the time you know i definitely see it as an ongoing process you and i are strangers true we know each other for 45 minutes that's right and hearing this i my my gut questions that i i want to ask is why do you think you were the way you were? Especially in regards to how you treated people. Yeah, I think I was raised with unhappiness and I think I did not realize that I was an unhappy person. And a, a very telling thing was that whenever I it was perceived that I was wrong or perhaps that I had been wrong in a situation, in an exchange with someone or in the way I handled something, I had to make it the other person's fault somehow so I could justify it. So I could feel like I wasn't a bad person because I think I had been made to feel like I was kind of a bad person for a long time through, you know, just my mother's disappointment and everything. And, you know, 12 years of Catholic school, (laughs) which is all about how you're making God sad with the things that you do. Yes. You know, and I didn't know I didn't know how to be a person, you know, because I felt like I didn't know, I didn't understand the, the, the psychological aspects at play in my own mind. And all I knew was I feel like I'm not a worthwhile human being and I desperately want to feel like a worthwhile human being. So I will take petty victories if that's all that I have. So if it's making someone else feel bad so that I can feel good or discounting someone's feelings so that I don't have to face that I've been insensitive, you know, whatever it took, you know, that's what I would do. But of course, of course it didn't work, you know, and I never felt good. You know, I didn't feel like it was a thing that I had to tell myself, but that I didn't really believe. Uh, And the more successful you got, did it get easier to grapple with some of these issues because by the you know we're talking about the 2010 2011 this is really when i see you know just going through imdb it's like that's where the work is especially picking up well that's when i that that i think coincides with therapy you know with me being a happier person and being a more thoughtful person and understanding myself better and that made work easier it made work more enjoyable and it made it 
less scary. So going into a situation where I was going to be alone, you know, where I'm going to go onto the set, I'm not going to know anybody, you know, that used to intimidate me so much. And now I knew it would be okay. You know, I knew it would be fine. And that's all because of therapy. Was there a project at that time that in your head clicked to you as something like, ah, I've arrived at something. You always wanted the household name. Did it ever feel that? No, I think I think that that became that wasn't the goal anymore. You know, I realized that I because I didn't I didn't need that anymore. You know, I realized that all I want to do is work. I, I you know this is this is a job that a lot of us get into because we're missing something and we're looking to fill the hole. You know, we're looking to, to be validated by people we don't know so that we feel valid off stage, you know? And once I knew that that's what had been going on and once I didn't need that anymore, then it just became all about the work. And this is not, this is not to say that I don't get jealous of other people's successes. There's, there's certainly jobs that I would see and say, Oh, I wish I had that job. You know, this is not say I don't get disappointed when things don't pan out, you know, but the goal is not, you know, the, the love of strangers. The goal is to be happy and fulfilled, you know, and as close as I can get to that, the better. And so my approach to everything has been less about, is this going to make me, you know, a household name and more, is this going to be enjoyable and this pay good money, you know, and that field opened up. And I, I, it's also a function of not caring as much about what other people thought. And that, that was a, a big part of my snobbery too, was that, you know, I, I had other friends who were snobs and so they'd look down on, you know, whatever mainstream thing, you know, blah, blah, blah. The idea of, uh, somebody selling out, you know, these are things that I, that were very important to me. And now I don't give a fuck about it all. Like <laughs> selling out, it took me a long time to realize what selling out is. And selling out is when you, when you have options, but you just go for the money, you know, when you do some crazy commercial campaign, when you don't have to, you know, but it's like work is work. And I don't begrudge anyone doing a job that maybe is, I don't think is the funniest thing in the world, but it's like, Hey man, fucking good for you. You know? <laughs> Like, uh. you know, I'm glad you got that job. And I, I have become much less precious about that sort of thing. There's still some things where I'm like, honestly, it's more of a, it's more of a, is this thing mean? Is this, is this a thing that's hurting more than it is helping? And there's some, there's some jobs that are just like, this is dumb, but you know, I like the people I'll do it. And there's other things where it's like, I don't believe in the ethos of these people and I think it's bad and I don't want to be any part of it. Uh -huh. That's, that's more rare, you know, but every once in a while stuff like that comes up, yeah. you know, but it's more about, you know, I don't know. You realize life is finite and it's like, I just want to have a good time. <laughs> I just want to have a good time and not worry about paying my mortgage, you know? <laughs> It's so strange to hear you say that. And to think about you at ninety seven at that special. Oh yeah, I know. And I to know. see where you've where you've come from. Absolutely. 
But I, and also I think a, a thing that changed is, um, you know, there are things like podcasts now where I, I, it's possible to have a creative outlet that is all your own, that no one is, is interfering with. And, you know, that actually reaches people, you know, and that wasn't always the case. It used to be a lot harder to do something like that and have it be immediately rewarding and satisfying, right. you know? And now it's like, you can put a thing out and you're reaching thousands of people and, and, you know, hopefully more of them are saying they like it than not. And, you know, you're, you're, you're getting the encouragement you need to know that you're not crazy for doing this. You know, I'll continue to do this because there are some people that are enjoying this. That's good. There seems to be a lot of people enjoying it. I think it's doing all right. I mean, I, I and I don't just mean the podcast. I mean, the whole thing you're putting out into the world. I, I'm very, I think of it this way a lot in these, in, in these words. I am lucky that anyone pays attention to anything that I do. Because they don't have to, you know, and nothing is guaranteed. And the idea that that I've been able to hold on to some people who follow, if not everything that I do, many of the things that I do uh. is, you know, that's not lost on me. That's very profound for me still. And, you know, as 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 much as I do feel that I've worked very hard, I am very fortunate in that it it could all be for nothing, but you know, like there are people that I, I have found an audience, you know, and it's nice to know. It's very comforting to know that there are, there are people that are willing to listen. Why do you think they listen? I guess they like it for whatever reason. I think that I think a big part of it of comedy is you relate to it in some way. And some people, I think, like my take on things because it's not dissimilar to their own. It resonates with them in some way, even as silly as I can get, there's still something for them that says we're on the same wavelength, you know? Yeah. That's a strange thing. It is a strange thing. What's the best piece of advice you ever got? Ooh. It's really tough. I was always someone who hated getting advice, loved giving it. Right. Love giving it. Well, we'll do a two part. You could give us the best <laughs> advice you got, and then you could give. Honestly, the, the first thing that comes to mind, and this was early in my career when I was first starting out as a stand up, and I was first getting like paid gigs where I would be emceeing a show for $25 or something. And I was working, you know, day jobs at the time. And I remember doing a bit about whatever job I had at the time. And one of the other comics who was like the, he might've been the headliner guy named Jim Carroll pulled me aside and said, never tell people that you have another job. Always make it like, this is your only job. Right. And that made so much sense to me because it is, you know, I would I would understand that more and more as the years went by. Like it took me a long time to understand, even though I'd heard this from so many people, that there's a certain type of person who is afraid for the comedian. They watch comedy and they can't enjoy it. They can't enjoy live comedy because they're afraid for that person up there, either because it, it taps into their own fear or just because of the unnatural aspect of it, of like, 
why would somebody do this? You know? <laughs> and I remember that being, that making a lot of sense to me at one point, like, oh, okay. This is why when you're a confident performer, it puts people at ease because there is, who knows how many people in that audience are freaking out, you know, because like, oh my God, please don't let this guy bomb. You yeah. Know? And understanding like, you know, you let the audience understand this is your one job. It also means that they should pay attention to you yeah. as opposed to this guy works at some retail store. <laughs> Why is he on stage right now? He should be at the other job. Yeah. The, <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, the, the best advice I can give, and this, I say this anytime anyone asks me for advice when they're about to start doing stand-up or they're about to do improv for the first time is remember that it's supposed to be fun. And for as many, you know, negative emotional reasons. There was a lot of eye rolling there. Yeah. Well, because it's so much, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of angst that goes into stand up. I think for a lot of people, this is not to buy into the sad clown myth, which I hate, but there is obviously there's a, there's a common thread for a lot of us that, you know, get up in front of strangers and, and tell jokes and the satisfaction of making them laugh and the feeling of acceptance that that gives, you know, that's not, I, I'm not going to deny that there's a psychological aspect to that, but a big reason to do this, the number one reason to do this is because it's fun. And that is the easiest thing to forget in the, in the, in the, the crazy, you know, turmoil that you feel before you go on stage for the first time. Forgetting that it's fun. Yeah. It feels like, cause it feels like life or death, you know? And it feels like a man, if I don't, if this doesn't go well, what does that mean about me? What does that say? You know, it's like most, most people don't do well their first time on stage. Some people do really great the first time and then they bomb the second time. You know, it's you, we will put so many things on this experience that it's very easy to forget that it's supposed to be fun. And, uh, in 2017, are you having fun now? I mean, given how awful this year has been, yes, I've had a surprising amount of fun. I, I, I laugh a lot. I, I get to work with a lot of talented people and I got to spend much more time with my wife this year, just hanging out, you know? So it's been, it's, it's maybe the most fun that I've had. So you hate getting advice, but you are taking your own advice. Yeah, but don't tell me that. <laughs> uh, Paul Tonkins, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Sam. This week's episode of the show. You can find Paul's podcast, Spontanea Nation, wherever you listen to your podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Paul, 
be sure to visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. Also, if you like this episode of the show, you probably enjoy past conversations with folks like Lauren Lapkiss, Ben Schwartz, Reggie Watts, Andy Daly, and more. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes and SoundCloud. And of course, if you want to give us a review on iTunes, it helps new listeners find the show. As always, our executive producer is David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Valerie Attenhofer, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week with Lois Smith. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.